This is Before the Light Goes Out with Catherine Williams. The Anchoress is the stage name of Catherine Ann Davies. She is a songwriter, author and multi-instrumentalist. She's supported and duetted with the Manic Street Preachers, as well as performing with Simple Minds, Ed Harcourt and Martha Wainwright. Her second album, The Art of Losing, was named amongst the best albums of 2021 and included in publications like The Sunday Times, Record Collector and Classic Rock. She's also got a book published through Bloomsbury entitled Whitman's Queer Children, all about epic poetry. Welcome, The Anchoress. Oh, thank you for having me. I feel very relaxed already, actually. I'm sure you've had this said to you many times. Your voice is incredibly calming. Every time I hear my voice when I'm editing the podcast, I'm just swearing at myself saying, you're such a dick. So uh, <laughs> I'd like to hear... I don't know, does anyone like the sound of their own voice, though, actually? No. Really? Have I ever met anyone that likes the sound of their own voice? It's strange, though, isn't it? Because it goes out into the world. It mustn't be the same hearing it It's back. definitely not, because I always think my voice is deeper than it is when I hear it recorded. And I think it's got something to do with, like, the resonance in your head or something. I'm not sure what of it. I'm sure somebody much smarter than me can talk about the physics of it. But it's we hear our voices differently to how other people... It's, it's the same as, like, when you take a selfie, isn't it? And you never look like that. Yeah. that's not how you look in the mirror. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to flip it. I always think I I look really brilliant until someone takes a picture of me and then I'm shocked. (laughs) So how did you sleep last night? Not too badly. I think I did about a four hour chunk in the first instance. And I did my, at the moment I'm waking up quite a lot as I'm sure lots of people are. So I don't know when this is going to go out, but we are recording it right in the middle of the beginning of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine and I think for a lot of people that's brought up a lot of anxiety and stress everyone I speak to at the moment is sleeping quite badly so I kind of managed the first four hours is fine then I wake up and I think I was kind of sporadically falling in and out of a Netflix series of some sort trying to get back to sleep you know with my sleep headphones in up until about time did I wake up about eight twenty. that's my usual kind of natural waking times are not that restful even though it sounds like a long time to be asleep I think it's like the quality of sleep wasn't there for me yeah I have a chunks and then I manage to get myself back to sleep usually with some some sort of gentle podcast or comedy or something that's like light same with me I'm doing shit squeak again at the moment something to kind of send me back to sleep because they always say don't they you're watching something you've seen before it's quite good if you've got anxiety because you know what's going to happen but also your brain doesn't stay awake because you're not sort of waiting to find out the next plot point my problem with podcasts is I want to listen to them too much so I can't actually fall asleep when I'm listening I, I kind of want to hear especially James O'Brien which is my one of my favorites I just want to hear the end of the interview so I've had to uh, stop doing that it's been a horrible habit that I had on tour listening to podcasts there's a good one called um the boring talks which might be perfect for you and it's people talking about car boots or sort of really simple and well I've actually found them quite interesting but they do send me to sleep because they're so detailed and gentle (laughs) well I tried the is it the radio 4 series this is like slow radio whatever it's called but again I found it too interesting there was one about kind of like Benedictine monks and I thought I got to the end of the 25 minutes in which you were forced to fall asleep in so things like that don't ever really work for me but I think because I've got quite a history of insomnia I'm I'm like 
what's the, what's the phrase? <laughs> I am the uh, the exception to the rule in a lot of cases about what's going to work. Like sleeping tablets don't work for me. They actually make me wake up. Um, yeah, so all the things that should work don't don't really do it for me. So where are you sleeping tonight? Hopefully in my bed. <laughs> so you're at home. I well, I've been at home now for pretty much two years, shielding. Um, due to COVID because I've got some of those pesky pre-existing conditions Um, so yeah I pretty much I haven't slept anywhere apart from I've been in the hospital a little bit and and, and slept there for a couple of nights but apart from that I've been at home for the longest period of time in my life to not have gone back to Wales to not have been in London to not have been on holiday or visited anybody so it's, it's been quite a strange couple of years really odd. I realised how easy it is not to live out of a suitcase. I was like, this people just open wardrobes and there it all is. <laughs> yeah, I think because I spent so much of, so from like 2014 through to 20, end of 2018, I was touring with Simple Minds pretty much for about like six or seven months of the, of the year. So I actually found it really, really difficult to sleep at home because I was so used to being in a hotel room. And like you say, when that when you're forced to stop that, you actually realise how unnatural that is. Yeah. And I'm sure there's something about the body not really being able to relax in that environment too, because I'd always find when I was... This is when my, my chronic insomnia kind of kicked in, that if we happened to be in the same place for a couple of days and therefore in the same hotel, I'd actually sleep a lot better because I could start to relax and feel safe. But obviously when you're you know, constantly falling asleep in a different bed or waking up in a different place, it's probably quite natural, I think, to develop insomnia because your body's thinking, oh, this is it's not safe. It's not, be alert, be on your guard. So where's the strangest place you've slept? Probably a tour bus, I think. That first experience of being on a tour bus bunk was quite difficult for me. Um, so I'm autistic, so I'm very sensorily challenged, shall we say. <laughs> so it's already sensitive. And I didn't have any experience of tour buses before joining the Simple Minds at all. You know, I just toured very much kind of, you know, in the back of a people carrier or, you know, a splitter van type thing. So I didn't, I was a bit of a rookie and I made a rookie error of going on a bottom bunk. So obviously you're right near the engine over the wheels, so you feel all the vibrations. And I remember that first night, I actually gave up trying to sleep and went into the front lounge and tried to sleep in there. And I thought, oh my God, what have you done? How are you going to get through this? Because if you cannot sleep on the tour bus, you're going to crumble. So yeah, I think that's the strangest place, but you, you know, you get used to it and you kind of figure out some coping mechanisms. And I eventually moved up to a higher bunk. So yeah, and that was a lot easier. And then you get quite used to that kind of rocking sensation. You know, It's quite soothing in a way, but um, I'm not sure how I'd cope now. But yeah, I think that's the strangest place of ever. It's like being in a coffin as well. Yeah, there's a lack of sort of definition of time on a tour bus. So you can be sat watching telly in the back or be hanging out after a gig or be in pyjamas, but it can get a bit messy because like there's no sort of having to, you know, you just keep rocking up to the next venue and then you can see how people can sort of lose their sense of not day drinking, (laughs) you know. Well, you see, I made a very good decision before I started touring with the band to not drink at all on tour which in hindsight was one of the most excellent life choices I've ever made because I can see how easy it is to do it um it got a bit boring actually 
after a while but I stuck to it and I think that really helped with the lack of sleep as well I think you know dealing with a hangover every day would have been horrendous yeah but and it was so the the schedule of the way that the band kind of worked as well it was we did six shows a week so it was actually quite a bit like a military operation in a way sort of there wasn't that that kind of erraticness of schedule. There was a sense of usually it was the same routine, you know, straight on the bus, drive to the hotel or wherever you're going to be. You know, you'd get into the hotel maybe at like two or three in the morning. Then you sleep through breakfast, get up, do it all again. So it, I quite like that. I enjoy a routine, though. My son's autistic. Were you diagnosed early or...? Yeah, when, so when I was at first school, um, I guess when I was kind of aware of it, I'd probably have been a bit about seven um, when I started to be taught separately, so this was at my like middle school, as they as they called it then. But my parents kind of never really made. I say they didn't really make it not a big deal out of it. We didn't really talk about it. So this was kind of in the nineties when people didn't really have the same approach, shall we say? Yeah, it's it's really hard for me to sort of say it say much about it because obviously I don't have any other experience yeah. at all. And I, and I, I don't know what it would be like to. I, I can't say, for instance, like thinking immediately. Like, I know a lot of people who are autistic have issues around sleep. And again, I, I don't know how how much of my kind of chronic insomnia is to do with that, or whether it's to do with their you know, life experiences or context as well. So it's, I find it sort of because I literally have nothing to compare to. And I think one of the questions I've always asked throughout my life to other people, which I use as like barometers, is, is this normal? Is this what normal people do? So I think I've always had a sense of being a bit... I know it's not very politically correct to say it now, but as a kid I would be, like, very aware that wasn't normal um, and always asking whether what I was feeling or doing or thinking was normal and wanting to be normal. We've had a sort of up-and-down journey with, with our son, school not being his place to be and people misinterpreting the way he just is as being naughty or like sullen or this or that and you know and and most of the time he just sees it as it is and speaks it as it is I just find you know where you are and I suppose I'm trying to say that I've learned a lot from him about his directness and how he sees things a different way it upsets me a bit that you had these times thinking you know is this normal is this normal it definitely got a lot better, you know, when I became an adult, I had another kind of re-diagnosis as an adult and got the opportunity to have like lots of, I think what they call now called like occupational um, assessments and things that, you know, how, how can you better communicate with the people around you, you know, what adjustments you need and things like that. And that really changed my life because it was, I realised it was not about me changing, it was just about me explaining to other people hey if you think I'm rude I really am I don't mean to be this is why I might be really blunt or why I might have not very much filter or this is why I don't say hello when I come into a room that that was definitely a real when I first joined Simple Minds that that was a real sort of not an issue but like a bit tricky because I think people thought I wasn't very friendly and then I just explained oh it doesn't occur to me to say hello when I come into a room I have to be reminded you know my mum would train me up to say things you're supposed to say when you go to visit someone the things that you say when you leave because it doesn't come naturally to me and I think giving that context really helped people to understand that actually I wasn't being snooty or off or you know any of the things and labels that you might get and I think context is so important yeah and I see my nephew going through similar um as I see it is quite genetic and we have a lot of it in the family and I see the younger the younger ones going through it now and they have such a different experience I think it's much better accommodated and much better understood than it was 
when I was was growing up and it's such I am quite close to my nephew because I think we sort of see the world in really similar ways as well which is nice no that's lovely (laughs) to have that connection can you sleep anywhere no I cannot sleep sitting up (laughs) not not for love nor money could I sleep sitting in a car or sitting in a chair or on an airplane unless it's a flatbed I would give anything to be able to sleep sitting up because I don't know how people do it not happening might have got a really long neck I think that's what it is my neck is super long my chiropractor said this I've got a very long neck so I think it's just my head kind of lolls like to one side and it's just no I can't can't do it I want some of your neck I've got no neck that's the one thing <laughs> I wish you, I'm gonna try and show you I was saying my neck is supremely long it's like the ballerinas you can't see it because it's under my hair but I do have an incredibly long neck um which is yeah it's a bit of a bitch if you're trying to get to sleep when you're when you're sitting upright so no I can't sleep sitting up okay and do you prefer sleeping alone or with someone see this is I'm gonna give the unfashionable answer and say alone and I've always been like this so I do sleep better definitely on my own and I think again that maybe that's got something to do with being autistic and that I just I'm very um sensitive to, to any kind of stimulation sensorily like noises or touch or anything like that you'd be surprised the amount of people that i speak to on the podcast who guiltily admit that they love sleeping on their own (laughs) i I think we all like to take over the bed now and again yeah i I think that the what's the word the compromise is just get a really really big bed so i've got a king size bed it's not big enough i think to share it with somebody else i'd want like one of these kind of super super kings that do i know they exist because I've, I've, I've seen them in hotels you can sometimes get you know the extra extra one that's like six foot something wide you can lie anyway you can lie pillow end or like length and you still fit in the bed i've been on one of them the good thing is i'm quite small so i'm quite petite so i think I can kind of just go into my little corner, my own little postcode, <laughs> yeah. and, and sort of have my own space. But yeah, I think it's, if you look back on it, like, isn't it historically speaking, people who were rich used to have separate beds because they could afford to. I didn't know that. And it, and it would only be the poor people who would have to share a bed. Yeah, and the family would share a bed even. And the children, yeah. So yeah, I think that's why the, the Queen and her husband always had separate bedrooms, didn't they? It's, it's a kind of aristocratic thing. Because that, that's, that's admitting that it's the most comfortable thing to do and it's a luxurious thing to have your own room yeah. and your own space. So the Queen wouldn't be able to answer my next question, which is spoon, cuddle or space? Space. For, well, for sleep or just in bed. I just wrote those three things. I don't really know. <laughs> can't qualify. I am a fan of, of, of a spoon. I do like a spoon, but not in order to sleep. Yeah. I think, it, I think it, yeah, space to sleep, I think. I do spoon, cuddle, then turn the other way. Don't touch me. I'm going to sleep. <laughs> that, that sounds like my routine as well. <laughs> <laughs> what keeps you awake? Anxiety. A lot of anxiety. Un- unfinished thoughts. At the moment, obviously, what's happening in the world is definitely keeping me awake. Or it's more that what wakes you up and then keeps you awake. So I'll tend to, after that kind of four-hour REM cycle, I'll get, you know, then where you go into that really deep sleep at the end, that's when the nightmare comes and that wakes you up. So I'll get, like, anxiety or nightmare, woken up <gasps> with shock, and then it's really hard to get back to sleep then. I usually get woken up by a nightmare to the point of almost electric shocks me out of sleep. I don't always remember them, but I know that I do have nightmares because 
I sort of often wake up my husband and he's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, another nightmare, like a little kid. So do you do you remember any of them or? Oh God, yeah, all, always. I mean, it's, it's usually about kind of death or dying or something like that. Um, you know, someone that I love being in, in danger. And it's, I think it's just the brain unraveling and trying to work out your kind of deepest fears, isn't it? Or, or things that have been happening as well, you know, had a lot of loss over the last few years. So I think it's, when you go into that deepest place of sleep, you know, it is your brain trying to make sense of that and it needs to do that processing. So I try not to kind of look at it with bad judgment and think, oh, a nightmare's a terrible thing. I actually try to kind of be benevolent towards them and think, they're giving me something, which is that space and time to process difficult thoughts. But obviously your cortisol levels shoot up and then it's really hard to get back to sleep. It's That's something I find really, really difficult once I've woken up. But I can't remember the last time I did eight hours straight. You're a grazer instead of a full three meals a day, you know? I was reading something about this recently, actually, saying that we've been, like, brainwashed into this idea of sleep hygiene and this is, like, the new kind of fitness fanatic kind of phase. The idea that any human is designed to sleep for eight hours straight and that we should be stressed if we, if we don't get our eight hours. Actually, we are grazers. Like, we would do four hours and then get up and do something, or farming, or whatever it was that we would be doing historically, and then go back to sleep again. Yeah. But obviously, the world isn't designed around that if you have a nine-to-five job. It's, it's tricky if you've got to be up for something, or if you've got people waking you up at a set time. I, I definitely find that the pressure to be up at a set time makes me more anxious about getting back to sleep, and therefore makes me not able to sleep if that makes any sense at all it does make sense and i often think society is kind of like a bad babysitter in some ways where it's just like right it's night time now everyone be good and go to bed so we can just put our feet up and watch the telly and the world can just be forgotten about for like half of the day i think it's especially difficult during like lockdown and the height of the pandemic as well because most people were working at home, so it became increasingly difficult to have that kind of relaxing headspace in the home. And then how are you supposed to transition into that winding down time? Or unless you're going to completely tune out from the news as well, I think it's it's really, really difficult if you're quite an empathetic person to sleep well at the moment. Yeah. I find it baffling that those people that don't have insomnia I'm more suspicious of. I'm dosing my news at the moment. I want to empathise and I want to be proactive and help and do all of that but I am dosing it because I just think that that rolling news it can be perpetuation that makes you feel like you will get new information straight away and it doesn't always mean that you will but it gives you that anxious consuming more 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 yeah doom scrolling as they call it I mean I do that terrible thing whenever I walk into the kitchen I was like Alexa play BBC News and you get you know your kind of nugget of of update of what's happening and my mum said to me today when she was over she's like why are you listening to that she's like she was talking about like North Korea now arming up and it's just like it's difficult for me because I like to be informed and I've always you know like BBC News 24 is like my go-to channel if I've got the TV on that's what's on that's just you know how I engage with the world and I guess it's almost like we pride ourselves don't we on being well informed but there does come a point certainly at the beginning of the pandemic I stopped watching the news completely for for various reasons I realized that in order to survive I was going to have to pretend it wasn't happening so I didn't watch any of those famous 
presentations by Mr Boris Johnson. I missed it all. I was the same and I felt like I had to make my reality part of the news as well and look out of the window and go, oh, a robin on the bird feeder, this is also happening today. Even it out with what was happening around me and with my family as well as being informed with the news, I had to protect my own head. Yeah, it's tricky. It's a tricky balance, isn't it? It's really hard and, and also like having everyone having you know a phone as well in their bedroom and it's like you say like that bad babysitter thing we're told all of these rules that if we don't do it then it's our own fault we're not sleeping and in a way I I guess there's no kind of broader responsibility being taken for the reason why we have this crisis in sleep is it really down to me to be a good girl and pop my iphone on charge downstairs it's not in my room and have blackout curtains is that really what's not making me sleep or is it more to do with the way the world is I think there's this idea that somehow it becomes, it's sort of pushed onto this like personal responsibility that it's your fault if you don't sleep well. Yeah, you're right. I'd never thought of it that way. So do you write and work better in the daytime or the nighttime? And has that changed over the years? I think when I first started trying to do music and you're kind of always, you know, begging on favours or just on, you know, downtime in the studio, it was like beggars can't be choosers. So I tended to be on other people's schedules so that would be late (laughs) because you know there was still that I think and there still is in the music industry this idea that it's all supposed to be rock and roll and people work late and you do your best mixing at one in the morning made me really really unwell it's just not for me and then I I did a a collaborative record with Bernard Butler and we only worked like 12 to 5 and we did that and I loved it it was partly because we had such a short amount of time it was very focused work, so there was no kind of dicking around and sort of pretending that we were making music. We actually just got on with it and made music. And it was so civilised. It was just really nice. It was like having a job. So I think I actually function better when I kind of create, not to a routine and schedule, but allow that space for it to happen and not pressurise myself then, you know, like 12 till 5. When I had the kids, my time got really condensed And actually, it focused me incredibly. When I first started making music, it would be like two in the morning. Same as you, I would beg, steal and borrow time in the studio when the other bands had gone. The excitement of working late when everyone else is asleep. And now, I love an early morning when no one's around and I can write something down in secret. Yeah, I think it's it's such an unhealthy kind of perpetuation of that myth, isn't it? That that you can only do good work if... You know, it's late at night and you've had a few and I think it it almost kind of polices who has access to creativity, uh, which is not mothers, not parents, not people with caring responsibilities, not people who don't like to walk home in the dark at night. I mean, that was another issue. Like, uh, I'm about to do this kind of series of workshops for women in studios. And one of the really big things I talked about when we were organising it, it was making sure that the studio that we picked was in a residential area and that the journey to and from the tube was not too long and it was well lit and just things like that that I remember just being never accounted for when I started making music you know that tube journey home on your own being petrified (laughs) or thinking can I afford a taxi tonight because I've just finished it's the strong rooms and it's two in the morning and I was living in Blackheath at the time and you know it's impossible to get home at that time unless it's a night bus so I, I do think it's it's a bigger kind of story than just 
oh yeah it's all rock and roll isn't it it is it's a little bit of that kind of unsaid policing about you know as i said who has access to be creative who's entitled to be creative and i think as women it's really important that we make space for those that have got caring responsibilities still in the room and that means you know allowing it was great when i worked with bernard again recently you know he'd have to finish at three o'clock because pick his daughter up from school and it was lovely to see a man kind of saying you know these are the hours that i work i'm sure he won't mind me saying that it was really nice yeah and again it was so condensed but we were so focused and it, it's just bullshit all those 12 hour sessions i did where you'd never actually get anything done for the first five hours anyway <laughs> I always think of those sort of tropes of what rock and roll is or music world is. It's kind of like the same thing as people quoting Jack Kerouac on the road as being freedom, when generally all the women who are in the book are left behind and he goes back on the road and off and about. Because it is all blokey. I mean, I've been scared so many times, like touring on my own, driving myself to gigs and at the end of the night going to a travel lodge at the side of the A1 getting to reception and knowing my my room is like right down this corridor and I'm like running down the corridor to get to the door and lock the door behind me male musicians who I work with have never even considered that we have to worry about our safety and it's in our psyche to worry about our safety absolutely i mean i've i don't drive so i've never had to talk completely alone and i think i've been really lucky in that regard i've just had one person with me my dad actually used to drive me to all my gigs i used to be so embarrassed about it in fact i was talking to i don't know if you know howard monk you probably played for him he was he's like one of the kind of promoters in london he now lectures at bim and he was saying, oh, I think I must have known you now about, you know, a decade. And I was like, I remember when I played my first gig for him and my dad chaperoned me and I was so embarrassed at the time. And now I look back at it and think, oh, what would not give my dad to be driving me to my gigs now? Yeah. But was, yeah, I was at my dad there, I think. So I sort of felt quite like I had a bodyguard, I guess. <laughs> you know, no one was going to, I think everybody thought I was super, super young as well because my dad was there. So again, it kind of protects you a little bit, doesn't it? We've come to the last question and I've been so engrossed with just chatting. I didn't realise that was at the end of my questions. Can you remember or think of a lullaby or book that you had as a child read or sung to you? Do you know what? I can because I've just ordered it myself for somebody. I'm just trying to find the title. Yeah, just thinking, there's this book that I read, The Maggie Bee, when I was a kid and I remember ordering it from they used to have those like book club things at school where you would you know, pay your money and then the book would come like two months later or something before Amazon existed and I haven't read it for years I'm sure my mum's still got it at her house but I needed to buy a gift for somebody recently and I just thought I know that they would love this book and I managed to track down a first edition of it and I'm just waiting for it to turn up actually this week and it should be here any day. And it's a beautiful story about a little girl that goes on a boat with her baby brother and she has everything that she needs. It's like a kind of microcosm of her creative world. And it's just so beautiful. I remember it being really magical and I'm really looking forward to reading it again. It was just, I think I was just obsessed with this when I was a little kid. And yeah, I I hope I'm not going to be disappointed when I read it again. It's like one of those things, isn't it, that you hold in your in your memory that may not be as good as as you remember it yeah I remember some ladybird books and I was thinking oh I remember them they were so involved and I was imagining these big books and I went to my mum and dad's house and I opened one and there was like three words on each page and I'd imagined this huge epic story that I remember from my mind but it must have been I was so focused in on the pictures that 
they just took me through the book as if it was a novel. Yeah, I was going to say that. I think as children, our imaginations are very visual, aren't they? And, and it's all the detail in the illustrations that kind of tells you the story that maybe you can't even read it yourself. When I, when I was two, I was obsessed with this book called Mrs. T- Mrs. Tiggy Winkle's something. And I just, I just remember having hedgehogs in. I couldn't read, obviously, at that age. <laughs> uh, but I used to carry it around with me everywhere. And I had a pencil. And I used to just stab holes in the book. Like, I thought that was what I was reading was, that you would stab the words with a pencil tip. Jeez, imagine if it had been Braille and you'd actually <laughs> written it in Braille. I must have seen something to do with reading Braille or some, who knows what was going on in my head. But my mum came across the book and it still got all those holes in it from where I st- stabbed it to death. <laughs> Maybe you were making space for all the uh, spikes. I think I just found it really, really pleasurable. I re- distinctly remember doing it and loving, like, the feel and the sound of that pencil kind of going through like pressurizing through the paper just puncturing paper it's a lovely sound it's like a plop kind of really satisfying like squeezing a spot or something it was um i still remember it today because i i was talking about it the other day um because i remember having it with me the day i was christened um it was sort of like my comfort blanket yeah it just came up because we were talking about someone else's christening and um it's weird the the things that stick with you and I, I do wonder if it's that early on like you say with the with your ladybird books where our kind of artistic potential kind of gets laid down because I, I, I don't know that every child has that response to what they're reading and what they're seeing and I don't know you know what comes first chicken or egg is it there innately and that's why you respond to it in that way or is it reading those books and reading those stories that kind of plants those seeds it's, it's impossible yeah to tell but yeah books have always sent me to sleep and been my kind of i would always be under my cover this little tiny torch reading after i was supposed to be asleep oh that's why i've yeah got terrible eyesight (laughs) (laughs) well i've really enjoyed talking to you and i hope that you get a full eight hours tonight me too thank you so much the anchoress (laughs) 